Let's just have a quick word of prayer over the Scriptures. Father, we thank You that You are willing to give us all that we need to understand the the wonders of Your Scriptures. And so we pray, Father, that You would send Your Spirit, that quickening Spirit who we just sang of, to now open our eyes to the riches and the glories of the Gospel, that we would, Lord, once again rejoice and abound in hope because of all that You have given us through Your Son. We praise You for this, and we ask for Your help now as we approach your most holy word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So we will be looking at Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 1, the latter half of this this beautiful uh, chapter where Paul is exploding in joy. The first first half of Ephesians, Paul is bursting in this, this praise to God for all that He has done for you as His people, for you as a church. That this God, that the Father has, has predestined you, He's adopted you, He's incorporated into the, you into the family of God. That this God sent His, His Son who would redeem you, who would ransom you, who would rescue you from the powers of darkness. And then He would send His Spirit to come now and to seal you as an inheritor among all the saints where we will spend an eternity worshiping and glorifying this amazing and glorious God. And that's what happens in the first 14 verses of this text. But now, Paul switches from, going to, uh, from praising God to praying to Him. And Ian Hamilton has a wonderful note on this. He says, praise fuels our prayers for others. When we consider the Gospel, when we praise God for all that He has done, it makes us fall to our knees and want to worship Him, to talk to the Father who has done all this for us. So if you feel like you are becoming spiritually dry in your prayer life, perhaps it's because you are not spending time in worshiping and adoring the magnificence of all God has done for you. When we bend the knee to the Father, we, uh, we are fueled by worship to, to pray to Him and to seek His help. And so Paul is telling the Ephesians what he will be praying for in this passage. We're going to begin in verse 15 here together. Ephesians chapter 1. Paul says, For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints. Just a quick note here. Paul is never shy to tell the churches how much he loves them and how much he prays for them. And in regards to the church of Ephesus, it is without ceasing that Paul prays for them before the Father. He goes on, um, verse 17, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of Him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which you have been called, what are the riches of His glorious inheritance in the saints, And what is the immeasurable greatness of His power toward us who believe according to the working of His great might that He worked in in Christ when He raised Him from the dead and seated Him at His right hand in the heavenly places far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named not only in this age 
but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave them as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Ephesians is such a rich book. Uh, One pastor describes it like eating fudge. It is just full of these amazing, rich truths for us as God's people. Recently, my parents came down from Canada for uh, my PRTS graduation uh, just a couple of weeks ago. And one of the, the days they were down, my mom was out shopping. So it was a beautiful sunny day. So I said to my dad, why don't you come with me? I'll take you to a hiking trail nearby that I like to go to. It's a, it's a, it's a beautiful trail through the woods. And it was only about 20 minutes away. So I said to my dad, why don't we go and, and, uh, and journey through this, this, this wonderful hiking trail together. And so... Uh, as we were going there, I was kind of thinking that I would be the expert who was showing my dad around. You know, I'd been on this trail probably 150 times throughout my time at Puritan. I love to go there to meditate and to speak to God and to just enjoy the nature around me. And so when we got to the trail, uh, I, I, I quickly realized that I was not going to be the expert. My dad uh, pointed to things that, you know, even though I'd been there so many times, I'd never observed these little minute things that my dad could pick up on. He, he, we got to the bottom of the valley and he noticed how the sand in the bottom of the, uh, or sorry, the dirt in the bottom of the valley was a bit sandier than uh, the dirt we have back at home. And then we came to another section and it's full of these beautiful evergreen trees. And my dad was pointing out to me how they're actually, you know, different varieties of evergreen. I'd been in this valley, you know, so many times. I'd never seen any of these things that he was pointing out. So it was wonderful to have new eyes kind of uh, scanning the, the, the landscape that was before us. You could say I'm, I'm not observant, but I prefer to say my dad has a really keen eye for these details. And I've noticed this, you know, that uh, people who are experts in their craft, often tend to be able to spy out these subtle differences that the average passerby would never pick up on, right? So the guy who is used to installing windows notices when things are are not quite installed perfectly. And the guy who is used to laying the concrete pads, he notices when the the lines are a little bit out or the, the slant is not quite right. It's amazing how having an expert beside us can, can open up new realities, can make us see things in a different way. They were always there before, but now having their help, they make us see it all the more clearly. And Paul is really praying that the Ephesian church would have their eyes further open to the astounding wonders of all that God has given us in the gospel. Never come to the scriptures and feel, oh, I have heard this 150 times. I've been down this trail. I kind of know all the aspects there are to this word. Paul is saying, there's so much more. You church in Ephesus, there's so much more for you to learn, for you to grow in. Don't think this book becomes stale. Paul even tells the Ephesian church, I've heard of your love and I've heard of your faith but I want you to continue to grow and to see all that God has given you as a church in the gospel, to open your eyes to these wonderful realities. And so we're going to look at three things that Paul is trying to open our eyes to in this text together. If you look with me in verse uh, 17, Paul prays that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ 
the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of Him. The first thing that Paul wants us to see deeper into is the character and the person of this triune God that we love to serve. And so Paul prays that He would give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation. And notice that term, that He may give you. Because you will never uh, be able to see new things, be able to experience new things in the Word on your own intellect, on your own genius, on your own past experience. None of that is going to help reveal the wonders of the Gospel to you. It needs to come from the expert, from the one who inspired the Word, who wrote the Word, who moved the people who would speak this Word. He needs to be able to take you by the hand and say, look here, see this, notice this. We need God to give us this wonderful revelation of all that He has encompassed in His Word. And He's pleased to do it, right? We pray, Father... Would you give us this day our daily bread? And how many times has he not answered that prayer? We come to a difficult situation and we say, God, you are the God of all wisdom. And you say, ask, and I and you will be willing to supply your people with that wisdom. Would you help us here? Would you give us that wisdom? And he's pleased to do it time and again. And so we need the Spirit's help and He is willing to come alongside us as the expert, as the guide and say, look here, notice this. We need the Spirit to help us to perceive these amazing realities. And notice He's the Spirit of wisdom and of revelation. The Spirit of wisdom because He, he teaches us how to apply this Word to our marriages, how to apply this Word to our workspace, how to apply this Word to our work ethic. You know, He teaches us how to live out the reality of what God has commanded in His Word in our everyday lives. But He's also the Spirit of revelation because He is constantly showing us God's will for our lives. He's showing us the character of God. He's showing us the promise of God. And so we are beholding more and more in the Scriptures this great God that we serve. And so He is full of wisdom and of revelation. And notice the direction, the thrust, the way He is pointing our attention. It is in the knowledge of Him. This is the most important detail that we are learning more and more about our God. Remember what John says uh, when Jesus is defining eternal life. He says in John 17, verse 3, This is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God. This is at the heart, at the core of Christianity. Knowing our God, relationship with our God, learning about Him more and more, growing in our knowledge of who He is. And this is a borderless study. This is a a study that that we have, have never tapped out. We never can reach the edges of throughout all the history, all the theologians, all the pastors. We are never going to max out this study of God. Why? Because He's an infinite God. And so we who are finite 
can study his attributes, can study his ways, but they're, they're infinite. They're far beyond us. So we can do this for all eternity, day by day, 24-7, and never come to an end because he is that full in himself. There is no end to what we can learn about him. So we can just day by day grow deeper and deeper in this wonderful knowledge of him. It's a glorious relationship that we have to our God. Paul goes on to say in verse 18 that we have the eyes of your hearts enlightened. The eyes of our hearts enlightened. That's a peculiar phrase, isn't it? What does it mean to having the eyes of your hearts enlightened? Well, often when we think of eyes, we think of their relation to the head, right? The mind. The eyes are in your head. So what is Paul saying when he says having the eyes of your hearts enlightened? Well, he's differentiating, isn't he? That when we see and we behold our God, it's not just something that's going to affect the mind. It's not just a mere consumption of facts. It's not just learning, for instance, more and more about the the culture of Ephesus, about the the people that lived in that day, and, and, and Paul as a writer and what he says. No, we are learning more and more about God which affects down to the core of our being, which is our hearts. This is where all knowledge in Scripture is leading us to. It's trying to affect our heart. It is there that the Scriptures aim. And so Sproul says, I think, well, he says, the key work of the Holy Spirit in regeneration is not giving new knowledge to the brain, but it's changing the disposition of the heart. And this is why Scripture will speak of conversion as going from a heart that is hard, a heart that is like a stone, to having a heart of flesh that is willing to be pricked and prodded and probed by the Spirit who is pointing us to God. So He's changing our hearts. And this is so insightful. I think it runs contrary to so much of our psychology and philosophy of our day, right? That tries to change people by perhaps changing their environment. That's, that will change them. Or if I, if I change their, their reasoning, that will, that will help condition them into to, to, to true and good change. But Scripture never speaks of change in this light. Scripture always speaks of change as change from the heart. If you change the heart, then the mind, then the will, then the emotions, these things will follow. But every other change, uh, change of environment, thinking, manipulation of emotions, these are superficial changes, and they will not evoke true change to the glory of God. But when he reaches our hearts and we behold him, then we grow, then we change as God's people. So how do we know that the knowledge that we are receiving is helping to change us in this proper direction? I think Matthew has a key insight here. Matthew says that where your treasure is, there your heart is also. And so the question becomes, is the knowledge that you are learning making you treasure your God more, making you desire Him more, making you love Him more, making you want to serve Him with your life, making you want to live for His glory. If that is what the knowledge that is being given to you does, then it is affecting your heart. It is changing you. And so this is what we need to strive for as God's people. 
There is so much more to learn about our God. We know more about the vast cosmos that surrounds us, about the the vast diversity of life than we know about all the wonders and riches of the glory that God has given to us in the Gospel. I'm not saying we know a lot about space and a lot about the diversities of life. I'm saying we know this, and and this little bit is, 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 is very small in comparison to our knowledge of God because He's that infinite. And so we can study Him all our days, for all our lives, for all of eternity, and never come to an end. So keep on diving in. Keep on plunging into this ocean who is your God. And keep learning about Him day by day. He has so much more to offer you. And ask that God would help change your heart so that you would reflect Him more and more as you grow in the wonderful knowledge of your Savior. Second thing Paul wants us to see is the hope that this God gives us, right? He moves on, verse 18, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which you were called. What hope, Paul? Well, Paul has just been speaking about this marvelous story that we are a part of as God's people. In the first 14 verses, he speaks of this God as predestined you, how he's adopted you into his family and how he's, he's given you this amazing inheritance and sealed it to you by the Holy Spirit. That's hope. That's hope like no other. That before God spun the globe on his fingers, he had you written in his heart. Paul says, in love, God predestined you. And you share in this glorious, amazing, rich hope. The hope that I don't have to make the most of my life. I don't have to make the the best of the cards I've been dealt with. I don't have to write my own legacy. But I am known by the God who designed the universe. And I was there in his heart before the foundation of the world was laid. And this God is watching over my life. He's writing my story. And he has a plan for me to sing his praise for all eternity with his saints. That's hope. And Paul says, I want you to know that. I don't want you walking around feeble and weak need, wondering whether or not what, what your purpose here on earth is. He says, I want you to know this glorious hope that you have been given in the gospel so that you could share that hope and tell the world of the amazing wonders of what God has done for you. And he says, I want you to know what is the hope to which you were called, what are the riches of His glorious inheritance. Notice it's his glorious inheritance. Paul in uh, chapter, or sorry, in verse 14 of this same chapter speaks of the Spirit guaranteeing for us our inheritance. And now he speaks of this God um, showing us what are the riches of his glorious inheritance. That's God's glorious inheritance. This is, this is so beautiful because it's telling you once again that you are loved and cherished by this great God, that He considers you His inheritance. Yes, we have an inheritance, but guess what is God's inheritance? It's you as His people. He considers you a treasured inheritance for Himself. Because God did not predestine us. Paul does not say in pity He predestined us. But if you back up to verse 4, it says at the end of the verse, in love, and then going into verse 5, He predestined us. In other words, when you come to the gates of eternity, God is not going to say to you, well, 
brother or sister, you know, I felt pretty bad for you. Your condition was pretty bad down there. And uh, I decided the nice thing to do would be to reserve a seat for you up here in heaven. No. God does not treat his children like that. He sees you as his inheritance, which means he's going to run out to you like the prodigal son father and say, come, my child, to the glories that I have awaiting you. In love, he predestined you. He is excited to show you all that he has in store for you in his son. And doesn't our world need this amazing hope? We see here in the West how our culture and worldwide, really, there is so much despair about the condition, the state of uh, this pandemic, about wars arising, and, and people are falling into despair. And we as a church need to shine as a beacon, as a light, this wonderful hope that the world can have. Because there is a God who sent his son to save sinners like you and like me. I was reading an article uh, speaking about the Great Depression and speaking about how people in that time, even though they didn't have very, very much financial means, they were still willing to actually spend money to go to the movie theaters. And you want to know why? It's because they, in the movies they would watch these characters and they would see them do these, these uh, amazing uh, uh, heroic deeds against all odds. In other words, they would see these characters who had hope. And they would go and they'd be willing to spend some of their precious money to watch these characters who had hope in order that they could go back home and they could share, they could be inspired to have that hope themselves in the midst of the darkness, in the midst of the despair. And I pray that you at Trinity URC, that that when people come into your doors, they are inspired by the hope that is in your walk, that is in your talk, that is in your language, that they say there's something different about this church than when I meet and I talk with those in the world, I meet and talk with my neighbors, my friends, my relatives. There's something different about this, this church that inspires me to have hope. And that we have a hope that is far more grand than any movie character ever has, right? They have slight odds against these enormous obstacles. We, we have a God who designed the universe that threw the stars in the heavens. This is the God who predestined us. Nothing is impossible for Him. And if He is working in us, He guarantees, He says, you can be assured of your salvation, that I have chosen you, I have adopted you, and I will preserve you to the end. We have a rich hope. And so we need to express that light. We need to show that light to this world. We have a God that you can find hope in who can make you a part of his family, make you a part of his story, make you share in the glories of the gospel. Lastly, what Paul wants his church to see is the enormous power that has been given to the church because of what Christ has done. Look with me in verse 19. He says he wants them to see the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe. You'll note that there's a progression here. He begins by saying, I want you to know what is the hope to which you were called. Notice that what is term. It's repeated again. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? The second time. 
And then he comes to the third in this triumphant bursting forth of praise where he says, what is the immeasurable greatness of His power toward us who believe. And then He spills over in defining what is this power? What is this immeasurable great power that God is beaming, streaming to His church? And so He he speaks of this power as being the same power that He worked in Christ when He raised Him from the dead and seated Him at His right hand in the heavenly places. What a mystery. Paul is saying that the reason that the the power that raised Christ from the dead, that made him close the tomb and, and, and made him walk out in full living form, is the power that God is sending to his church. This is a power like none other. It is far greater than any nuclear, electric, uh, uh, whatever power there is, it does not compare to this resurrection power that has now been given to the church. And you may ask, okay, what, what does that mean? I see that he's giving us this power, but what does that mean? Well, it means, believer, that you are able to put to death your sins. It means that you are able to live out his purpose for your life. It means that you are able by His grace to do good works that glorify God, that please Him. It's in this resurrection power that we must live. And Paul says God is giving that power to His church and it's an immeasurably great power. And so he says that this this power raised Christ from the dead and then he goes on, it seated Him at His right hand in the heavenly places. We just celebrated Ascension Day this past week. This is what we are celebrating. That Christ was raised to the right hand of God the Father. Look where this position is. Verse 21. It's far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And that is why we celebrate Ascension Day. Because it is the inauguration of of the King of kings and Lord of lords. He was seated at the right hand of God the Father, which is the most supreme, powerful place in all of the universe. And so if you turn back to Psalm 110, it says already in in the Psalms that the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until what? Until I make your enemies your footstool. So because Christ is in the most powerful position, there is no enemy, there is no contestant that even comes close to His supreme and majestic power. He is reigning over all. It's interesting, this is not just speaking of the raging kings of the day, but the terms rule and authority. If you just jump to chapter 3, in verse 10, you'll notice that those terms are used again. It says that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities. And notice where they are. They are in the heavenly places, which speaks of the spiritual realms. They are in these heavenly places. So Paul is speaking of the angelic and demonic world. Christ is not only far above the earthly kings of your world, he's far above all the supernatural beings in God's created realm. He's way above them. And this would have been particularly comforting to the church in Ephesus. 
Because if you want to do a brief history of what the church in Ephesus is like, you can go to Acts chapter 19 and 20. It speaks of how they were deeply embedded in this occultic, magical world. They were constantly at fear of the supernatural powers around them. And so when Paul began starting this church, they got together and they, they decided we're going to burn away uh, these books and all these, all these spells and all these things that we used to do in our old life. And you know how much they got together. It was 50,000 silver pieces worth of books. Modern equivalents, that's some $500,000 worth of magical incantation types of books. In a day where the printing press was not yet invented. And so they were entrenched in this fear of the supernatural world. It's not uh, something that they would have easily shaken off. And this, this, this fear of the supernatural world, is, it's not just a worship of Zeus or Athena or Artemis, the Greek gods, but it's actually a fear of supernatural beings because they believed if they didn't offer the right sacrifices, if they didn't appease the gods, then those gods were after them. And so they would ruin their crops. They would hurt their family. They would affect their lives. And so you can imagine how it would be very hard for the church at Ephesus to shake off these fears. But Paul says you can because the Christ who was raised from the dead, who is your God, of the, who is the Lord of the small church in Ephesus, He is raised to the highest seat. He is empowered from heaven. And so He is watching over you as a church and caring for you. You need not fear, church of Ephesus, the supernatural world, the earthly kings of your time. You have a God in heaven who is King of Kings. And he's, he's got the name above every name. That's a glorious and comforting truth. And Paul says that this, this power that's flowing through Christ is coming all to His church, to those who believe. If you look in verse 20, now to Him who's able to do far more abundantly than all we could ask or think. Or sorry, I'm reading chapter 4, my bad. <laughs> um, so back to ver- uh, chapter 1, Paul says in verse 22, that he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. These are really powerful words. Uh, this phrase, the fullness of him who fills all in all, is a peculiar phrase, and there's some debate over what this means, but I think in context, it's quite clear. Jesus is just related as the head over all things to the church. And now it speaks of the church as his body. And then it goes on to say, we're the fullness of him who fills all in all. And you say, how, how, how could we could be the fullness of the Son of God? How could we be the fullness of Christ? Well, it's not speaking in terms of, uh, right, because we, we confess that God in himself is able to, to live and move and have his being. He needs no thing. He needs no water or air. He needs nothing. But Christ in some measure does not consider himself whole without seeing you, his bride, his church. Just like the head is not considered whole without the body. Just like the bride is not considered uh, one without the bridegroom. Christ does not consider himself full without his church. And this is so motivating, right? Because Paul says that no man ever despised his body, but nourishes it and strengthens it. 
And so this one who considers himself connected to the church is now sending this power to nourish and strengthen the church and to make them grow up into him who is our head. So we are being nourished and strengthened by Christ. He's giving us all that we need. He's empowering us. The fullness of him who fills all in all. That phrase, fills all in all, he says, look at the power of this one. This is is the one who is controlling all of nature. This is the one who's controlling all of history. This is the one, the the reason the stars aren't falling out of the sky, because he's got it held up in his power. And in a special way, you are united to him. So he is pushing, he is giving you the power that you will need as a church. You little small church in Ephesus, you little small church in Michigan, you are being given this power of the risen Lord. And you can imagine how the church in Ephesus felt so small. We're in this big world with all these, these uh, you know, supernatural beings. And they, they, they feared Caesar who was controlling all of Rome. They felt like they were just this, this small little contingency. And to hear that they had this mighty Lord who was protecting them, preserving them, empowering them. You can imagine how that gave them such joy. As we look at the darkness overcoming our land, we see the evil in our land. We see the, the powers of, at work in our world. Our, our culture is moving more and more to this supernatural occultic obsession, which is a, really showing that we are turning away from God. But we don't need to fear. We don't need to fear because we have a Lord who is watching over and caring for each in every one of us. Paul says, I want you to see these things. I want you to know these things. I want you to go deeper into the wonder of all that God has done for you as a church. He wants your relationship with the Lord to be like that road of Emmaus, so that as you're walking with the Lord, he shows you more and more, and your heart begins to burn more and more for him, for all that he has done for you as a church. Isn't it wonderful when you see an older couple and they're, they're still so infatuated with each other. They're still so in love with each other. They, lo- they love each other's jokes. They, they love each other's characters. They, they're still throwing their head, heads back at each other's stories. You know, it's beautiful to see when their love does not die. And Paul says, I want you as a church to keep on growing in love for your Lord and love for all that He's do- done for you in the Gospel. Don't say, you know, I've heard a sermon on Psalm 23 a thousand times. What more could I learn from this scripture? No, come to this word with a humble dependency and say, Lord, show me the height, the depth, the width of all that you've done for us in the gospel. I can summarize it so well in the words of MacArthur. Someone came up to John MacArthur and said, John MacArthur, you've been preaching so long. You've been writing all these commentaries. You've been doing all this work. Do you ever come to the gospel anymore and and learn anything? John MacArthur said, only every day. I hope that is your, your relationship with God too, that you come day by day and say, Lord, would you show me new things? Would you show me the wonders of the gospel? Would you show me how to apply it to my life? Would you show me the richness of who you are and all that you've given me in Christ? May that be your relationship with the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Amen. Father, we thank you 
that you are able to make us born again to a living hope, that you're able to make us see the beauty and wonders of your gospel. And we pray, Lord, that we would live out of the power that you have bestowed upon your church, that you are giving to your church, Lord, the body uh, who is connected to the head of all things, who is the one who is seated on high. Lord, help us to see and help us to believe that you are our risen Savior, our risen and ascended King of kings and Lord of lords, and that under him we are safe, we are protected, we are empowered. And so we pray that you would give us that hope, that joy to live out our calling and to show the world the brightness, the brilliance of belonging to the family of God, sharing in his richness and his blessing for us, Lord, that we would exemplify the the beauty of living in a relationship with you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.